All right, good morning. I'm going to tell you right off the bat, we're going to be in the book of Habakkuk. So the next five minutes while I uh, do an introduction, you can find it. Uh, This is near the end of the Old Testament. Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So kind of right in the middle of those last minor prophets there. So as I continue on with uh, an introduction, that will give you a few minutes to find uh, where we're going to, to be this morning. Uh, so uh, before we uh, continue this morning, let me uh, open up in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, God, Lord, we come to you this morning with an eager anticipation, Lord, to hear your word. We come to you. We gather together to worship you. God, to open up your word together to see what you have communicated for us to know, God. Lord, we live in such an unstable time. We live in a time of great change, great tension, Lord, God, it seems every day something else is happening, God, that reminds us at how tenuous the situation is, Lord. And Lord, we come to you this morning with that tension in mind. Uh, we come into your word, Lord, and pray that you would communicate through it, Lord. I, I pray that you would teach us the things that you conveyed to Habakkuk, your prophet, and God, that we can have a greater insight, Lord, even into the the events of our own time and how we ought to react, Lord. I pray that you would guide our hearts and our minds in this time that we may think clearly and accurately about your word. Praise your name. Amen. Well, it is a pleasure for me to be able to fill in uh, once again for Terry as he's on vacation, uh, and especially in a time like this. Uh, we live in a time that weighs heavily upon me as I seek to try to to understand, to to read, and and recognize the events in, in a biblical light. Uh, the matters of the last few months, life as we have known it has radically changed with little inclination that things are going to slow down. That it seems that every week something else happens that raises the stakes. That another event, another tragedy, another... Uh, another event with with horrible consequences. I think the phrase unprecedented times has been overused. Uh, everyone has, has said it, but it is apt. It is the only way that we can describe the life, the times that we're living in. And for those that treasure and value righteousness and living, a life as a living sacrifice unto God, something that we've been talking about as we wrapped up our time in the book of Romans, the last six months has left our heads spinning as to how we are to to live that out in the context in which God has placed us in. But the present reality isn't something that has popped up out of nowhere. It's been decades in the making. As I look back to the turn of the century, about 20 years ago, I was sitting in a dorm room in Southern California, and I remember some things that came up for debate 
and these, these points of debate were previously unequivocally accepted as soundly and firmly biblical. That for centuries, no one had debated these things were, were true or false, that, that we accepted it as being biblical. And I remember having conversations with friends, professors, reading debates online, and thinking, well, this surely couldn't go anywhere. Like, rational minds will win out and people will understand that the Bible is clear about these, these issues, these topics. But it did go somewhere. And biblical truth was and has continued to be thrown out the window and surrendered. Uh, in that situation and in others, sound biblical understanding has been abandoned in order to follow the course of the world. Soon the theme of our society became that we had to be tolerant. Tolerance was celebrated. Tolerance was demanded that everything needed to be tolerated. Every viewpoint, every behavior. But soon we transitioned into a culture that no longer demanded something to be tolerated, but something had to now be accepted. But that was quickly followed by a necessity to not just accept something, but you must approve of it now. And now we've shifted and gone past approval and we've reached the point where you must celebrate that which the Bible calls sin. That wickedness must be celebrated. And if you don't, you have to pay the cultural consequences. And this can leave our heads spinning, trying to keep up with the constant narrative change. Even a casual observation of the news, something that I don't necessarily recommend consistently. Oftentimes are better just shutting it off. But a casual observation of what's going on in current events portrays a country that is spinning out of control. Our country is truly coming apart at the seams. We have race riots. Our cities are being burned down. Innocents are being murdered without cause. Families and communities are being torn apart over how to handle an epidemic. The justification and celebration of the murder of thousands of precious babies on the altar of a sexual revolution continues as an unstoppable train. We have a country that is legislating, not just approving, but legislating immorality, not only through our legislative branch, but also now through our judicial branch. We have churches that are now being shut down and told how they can and cannot worship the Lord. And beyond that, as one looks ahead, you see what is sure to be a divisive election in our clear and present future. And this election will have radical consequences either way. Further effects of a global virus are sure to be felt. I'm sure that we have not seen the last of this. And a growing animosity towards those who hold to a biblical truth, not to mention whatever else may happen in the upcoming months, whether it be murder hornets or something else. That something else is going to happen. And something else is, is going to shake shake us to the foundation. And it is enough to leave our heads spinning and wondering and crying out to ourselves, what in the world is going on? It seems like only a year ago we could worship in confidence that it, we, we took for granted a lot of the things that were going on and happening, but things have accelerated out of control. And we're left asking and crying out, what in the world is going on? Where is this going to lead? 
Something we have said multiple times, time and time again, is that we, what we know and believe about God to be true is what dictates our response in these times. In these times of uncertainty and instability, what we know to be true about God is going to educate and form how it is that we respond to the events that are going on around us. Theology is practical. It is informative. It will protect and uphold our souls. And without a firm foundation of truth, we will be swept away by waves of a changing culture. But that doesn't mean that sometimes we aren't perplexed. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, sometimes we're just perplexed. Sometimes we're left wondering what is going on? Where is this leading? How is this going to affect me? This morning, we're going to be going through the book of Habakkuk because I think that there are some similarities between what we are facing today and what the prophet Habakkuk had to face in his time. And we're going to see what his reaction was to the great sin that was surrounding him, the the times of uncertainty in his own country. He was a man who had a proper theology. He had a proper knowledge of God. And he was still left spinning by the degradation of false worship and immorality from the top down in Judah. Now, before we go into the book of Habakkuk, I think it is important for us to recognize some of the differences between our time and Habakkuk's time. First of all, Habakkuk lived in Israel and Israel was under God's theocratic rule. That the nation of Israel was God's nation. America is not that way. We don't have a theocratic rule uh, set above us. So God had and promised a special relationship with the nation of Israel. And those, that, that relationship had promises. Uh, those, those promises are not passed down uh, to other countries. That's a special relationship that God had with Israel. So that's something that's important for us to, to remember as we go into this. And we should also remember that Habakkuk had special revelation with God regarding the situation and what was at hand. That we don't have God specially communicating with us to tell us this is what is going to happen. This is what I mean by what is occurring. This is, these are my intentions. We have what God has revealed to us through his word and we can draw confidence from that. But it is different than the special revelation that Habakkuk received. And at the end of the story, what was revealed to Habakkuk was worse than he could have ever realized. And we will see that as we go through this this short book. Now, to give us some historical context of what was going on at the time, at the time uh, that Habakkuk is writing this, the northern tribes of Israel, the, the kingdom of Israel had split up into two different groups, the northern tribes and the southern tribes. The northern tribes have already been captured. They've been taken off and they've been dispersed by uh, the nation of Assyria. Okay, That has already occurred. Previously, you had, at that time, Assyria came down, invaded the southern tribe of Judah, and under the kingship of Hezekiah, God delivered the nation of Israel. Uh, Hezekiah restored religious reform in the country, but that was soon uh, abandoned by his sons and predecessors. Then Josiah, a young man, becomes king, and in the midst of trying to restore and refurbish the temple to clean it out, they discovered that someone had literally thrown the law away. 
They had literally stashed it in a corner and forgotten about it. And he uncovers it and he leads a national reform. But once again, that national reform was undone by his sons. He was killed in combat with Egypt and Egypt after his first son was put in charge for a couple months and then Egypt didn't like him, got rid of him and put Jehoiakim in charge. And Jehoiakim reversed all of the religious reforms that had been realized under his father. He set up shrines for false worship. He imported religious practices up from Egypt. He cut into pieces and burned the scroll from Jeremiah. You can read in Jeremiah chapter 22, some of the things that Jehoiakim did. That he, Jeremiah had written out what was going to happen and he disregarded it and literally cut it into pieces and burned it saying that he didn't care about what God had to say. That Israel had placed a false confidence in their invincibility. That Judah had looked at the northern tribes and saw that, well, they were rebellious, and so it's understandable why God would take them away. But Jerusalem cannot fall. We are invincible in Jerusalem. Look what happened when Sennacherib had come and sieged Jerusalem under Hezekiah, that the angel of the Lord had descended and had slayed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers at the base, at the foot of the walls of Jerusalem. What further evidence do we need to show us that there's nothing that can happen that can remove us from this place? And that was the mindset that they were operating under, that regardless of the idolatry that they had committed themselves to, they looked at themselves as being invincible. Jeremiah 22, verse 17 says, But you have eyes and a heart only for your dishonest gain. Speaking of Israel and Jehoiakim, you for shedding of innocent blood and for practicing oppression and violence. I read those words and I ask myself, does that sound familiar? Shedding of innocent blood, practicing oppression and violence. That is on our streets. That is out our doorsteps. When, when I was preparing for this, I had a couple misconceptions that I had to correct. The first one was that Habakkuk, when he wrote this, that he was approaching God with a misunderstanding of who God was and that there was something that he needed to be corrected of and that God was showing him, you're thinking wrong, you need to think Biblically, And so I was asking myself, what was it that he was being corrected in? And I, as, I, as I studied this, I realized that this is a form of lament that Habakkuk is using. And a form of lament is not something that is born out of spirit of doubt. We read through, Randy read through Psalm 73 this morning. And the spirit of lament is in Psalm 73, looking around and saying, God, look at what's happening and the, the, the wickedness around us and, and the wicked are prospering. Things are going well for them. What is going on? And that, that, that question does not arise out of a sinful spirit of doubt. That arises out of a desire for righteousness and asking God, crying out to God saying, God, when are you going to uphold your righteous standard? The lament was something that was very common, a common style of language and writing for the nation of Israel, for the psalmists. 
that you would commonly cry out to God and say, God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? It doesn't mean that they literally thought that God had abandoned and forsaken them and had now hated them. They're just communicating what is going on in their hearts, their minds, that they feel like they're spinning out of control and they need the reassurance from God that he is faithful to them. And that is the heart that Hezekiah comes into this, or Habakkuk comes into this book with. The other misconception that I had was I wanted to say that the situation for Habakkuk was worse than the situation that we see in our own country. And I, I was conditioned to think that, well, things were much worse for Habakkuk and his country than they are for ours and our, our current climate. But the more I thought about it, the more uncertain I am of that. The more I realize how far our culture has gone away from the Lord and descended into a commitment into wickedness, the more I understand that we have more in common than less. Now, Habakkuk is someone that we don't know much about. Uh, there's not much of, uh, much of his background or history that is known. We just know that he was a prophet, uh, contemporary of Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Zephaniah, preaching at the end of the kingdom of Judah. Uh, that it is an interesting prophet, uh, an interesting book, because most of the time a prophet would communicate, that God would communicate with the prophet, and the prophet would proclaim a message to the nation around him. The book of Habakkuk is more about a conversation between a prophet and God. That it isn't so much a message that is given to him and that he is then proclaimed to the nation around him and to declare their sin. It is more of letting us in on a conversation that is happening with a person who loves the Lord, who pursues and desires righteousness and is, is upset at what he sees going on around him. In this small book, we have a conversation between someone who treasures God's precepts and sees his nation profaning it with no regard or shame. But Habakkuk is instructive as to how we should live and think righteously in the midst of our own unchecked national unrighteousness and an uncertain coming judgment. To set the stage, to describe to you as to how we are going to be moving through the book of Habakkuk, we're going to see two questions that Habakkuk raises to the Lord. Okay, we're going to see two questions in chapters one and two, and then two answers in chapter one and two, uh, where God gives him an answer that he doesn't necessarily expect. Then as we move on into chapter three, we see Habakkuk's prayer and reflection on the truth that he now realizes. So the first, the first question, the first complaint that we see here in, in the first chapter, in verse 2, it says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you of violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. This, this is Habakkuk's lament. 
And he cries out to God and says, God, why are you not working? Why are you not working? Why are you silent, God? He looks around. He uses two different words for Christ. His first thing, how long do I need to cry for help? This idea that, that day and night that Habakkuk is praying and crying out to the Lord saying, God, we need your interaction right now. Things are not going well. And then he uses a different word for cry in the second part of verse 2. Or cry to violence. This is an intense crying out from anguish. It's a shrieking out to God. Saying, God, people are being slaughtered on the streets. Innocents are dying. People are being abused. Saying, God, why are you not interceding? Are we not your people? Habakkuk says. You make me look at sin and sin celebrated, iniquity promoted. Says the law in verse 4, the law is paralyzed. A consequence of, of their iniquity, of their sin, is that the law has no reforming effect. That the law was brought with great promise if it was followed. If they, if they adopted the law, if they treasured the law, if they followed the law, God said, it will go well with you. There will be blessing for obedience. But he also said there will be cursing for disobedience. That the law was useless if not heeded. Justice is never realized. Previously, the law was literally ignored and stashed in the corner in the temple. And it was forgotten. And the wicked, the wicked surround the righteous. You get a feeling of the sense of like Elijah crying out to God saying, God, am I the only one as Jezebel hunts him down? God, God's response to him is, I have a remnant. I have those who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And Habakkuk is now coming in a similar mindset saying, God, I am surrounded by wickedness. They are closing in on me on every side. You know why? Because wickedness hates the light. Unrighteousness wants nothing to do with righteousness. If you brothers and sisters, if you dare to stand upon the truth of the word of God, you will be hated because they hated Christ first. And that is the time that we live in. And it is only escalating. And Habakkuk felt the same way. He said, I'm surrounded by wickedness, God. I am upholding your word. I am upholding your truth. And people hate me for it. God, why? Why are you not acting? And then we look at verse four. God answers him. Look at the first verse. Verse five, excuse me. God says, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. So he invites him. First of all, he says, all right, I'm going to let you in here on what it is that I am doing. And he gives him four commands. Look, see, wonder and be astounded. He said, I'm doing something here. And I want you to watch and I want you to be in awe of what it is that I am doing. Then he says, 
I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe it if I told you. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to squeeze dwellings that are not their own. These are the Babylonians. God says, guess what? I'm raising up the Babylonians. Now, if you cry out to the Lord and you say, God, I am surrounded by wickedness, that I am trying to stand for righteousness, but I am surrounded by what is going on and I'm perplexed and justice is not being served. And God says, imagine you're crying this out to God and God says, well, guess what? I'm raising up communist China. Yeah, communist China, you know, that, that country with no regard for human rights, you know, that country that is, is forcibly making it so that the Uyghurs cannot procreate and, and, and grow their own population. You know, you know, that, that, that population, you know, that, that country that I see over there. Oh yeah, I'm raising them up and they're going to come conquer you. Isn't that great news? That's the modern equivalent of what would be going on here. We're like, okay, wait a second. I was expecting good news. I was expecting reform. I was expecting Gideon. I, yeah, if I could say, I was expecting for you to raise up someone like Gideon to, to come up and rise up and deliver us. God says, no, that's not my plan. My plan is I'm raising up Babylonians. I'm bringing the Chaldeans to you. They're dreaded and fearsome, verse 7. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like eagles, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings, they scoff. At rulers, they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep up like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Now, if the nation of Assyria and the nation of Babylon had publicists, the publicists for the nation of Syria would be way more effective in communicating how wicked and evil and dangerous they were. And the publicist of Babylon, Babylon uh, has some work to do. Now, we all know that the terrors of the kingdom of Assyria, right? That they would do heinous things. And I have a quote here of what the nation of Babylon was like. But there are small children amongst us. And I wrote it down. I cannot read it. Okay? Uh, of the heinous and wicked things that they would do with the people that they conquered. Now, the Assyrians had come in and conquered the nation of Israel. That is why Jonah was so appalled at God that he would spare them if they repented. He said, oh God, I knew you would do this. You'd be full of grace if I came and I preached salvation. I knew you would, you would forgive them when they cried out to you. We're, we're familiar with, with the, the wickedness of Assyria. But the Assyrians and the Babylonians were being led and ruled by two brothers. And the, the ruler, Nabopolassar, the ruler of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, was a sub-king. And he was the, the brother of Ashurbanipal, who was the leader of the Assyrians. That, these are like two families. 
they're like more connected than you would think. And at the battle of, of, of Nineveh, the Babylonian empire overcame the Assyrian empire and was now ruling. And that was uh, achieved by Nabopolassar. And Nabopolassar's son, you know, is Nebuchadnezzar. And that is who comes in and eventually does take away the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah. And to give you an example, biblically speaking here, of, of what happened when they came in, we see in Jeremiah 22 what is foretold of what would happen to Jehoiakim, that he would be bound by chains, he would be dragged through the streets alive, killed and dumped outside the gates. Zedekiah would be put in and installed as, as a king, and he for some reason, decided it would be a good idea to rebel against the nation of Babylon. And as punishment, they come in and they destroy everything. They just raise it all. Devastation. And they bring Zedekiah, they bring his sons before him, and they slaughter his sons in front of him. So the last thing that they sees is his sons being murdered in front of him. And then they gouge his eyeballs out and they drag them off to Babylon. That's the Chaldeans. That is the Babylonians. Like I said, the, the Assyrians get all the publicity for being really bad people and really vicious and brutal in their conquering. The Babylonians wasn't a cakewalk. It wasn't a soft conquer. So when God tells them, I have good news, I am working, and I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that's not what Habakkuk is expecting. And we see in verse 12, Habakkuk's second complaint, his, his second question here. He says, wait a second. Are you not from everlasting? Oh, Lord, my God, my Holy One, we, we shall not die. Oh, Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment. Oh, you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and the silent when the wicked swallow up a man more righteous than he? Habakkuk says, God, you're a holy God. How could you use a wicked nation like Babylon? How could you use the Chaldeans to punish your own people? People more righteous than they. Habakkuk is saying, I, I don't understand. I don't, I don't understand that these are the people that you're supposed to be punishing. These are the people that we're supposed to be elevated above. Not thrown down by. Now, this is less Jonah and Nineveh and more Job asking questions in faith, okay? The, Jonah looked at Nineveh and, and hated it. He hated the idea of God showing grace and mercy to a wicked people. This is less Jonah sitting outside the city of Nineveh waiting for God to throw a comet down from the sky and consume it. And this is more Job looking at what has happened in his life and looking at how things are not going as he would have planned and crying out to God saying, God, 
I don't know what you're doing. That, that Habakkuk is doing the right thing where he is reminding himself of what he knows to be true of God. He's not set up a false idol in his mind like, like Jonah had. That, that Habakkuk is crying out in lament to the Lord saying, God, I know what you have revealed to be true about you, but I'm having trouble connecting the dots here. I need your help to help me. Please help me understand what in the world you are doing because I'm kind of confused right now. That's the heart that Habakkuk is coming to, to the Lord with. And he says, these, these are wicked people that they, they gather in the nations like a fisherman gathers in fish into his net. He says, and then they worship their net. That these people worship their own might, their own strength, after they abuse the nations that they conquer. And then he says in verse 1 of chapter 2, I will take my stand at my watch post, I will station myself on the tower, and look out to see what he will say to me, and what what I will answer concerning my complaint. So Habakkuk says, look, I'm going to stand. This is a figurative thing where people would have a watch post. He's like, I'm going to take a stand on my figurative watch post. I'm going to look and to see, God, how are you going to answer? How are you going to work in this situation? How is this going to be worked out? That he's not challenging God. That he's looking at the situation and he's saying, I have to see how God is going to work in this situation. How is God going to make this right? And the Lord answered in verse 2, his second answer. He says, write this vision, make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. So he says, okay, I'm going to give you an answer, okay? I want you to write it down on tablets so that when someone reads it, they're terrified as to what's going to happen. And God is going to communicate to Habakkuk here and say, just because I'm going to raise up the Babylonians to come in and conquer the nation of Judah doesn't mean that they're going to escape my fierce wrath. Says verse three, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for He's saying that judgment is coming. If, If it seems like it's taken a long time, he's saying, just wait, judgment will come. This will come true. It will come to pass. It will not delay. He, and then he contrasts the nation of, of Babylon with what true obedience looks like in verse 4 and with a verse that you probably recognize. It says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. If you're familiar with the book of Romans, you're familiar with that verse, that the just shall live by faith a truth that's anchored in the Old Testament. He's saying, Nebuchadnezzar, this group of people, Babylon, yeah, they're prideful. Yeah, they're puffed up. Yeah, they're wicked. They think that all of their strength comes from them. They think that they are independent of me. And we see that in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. What did God do to him? He humbled him. Made him grovel, made him eat like an animal. He humbled Nebuchadnezzar 
It's the fulfillment of what God's talking about here. And eventually, Babylon will be conquered by Persia. And he goes on to explain here, through the rest of chapter 2, a series of five woes. And we're not going to spend due to time. We're not going to spend time going through these five woes. Um, but these woes against Babylon and what God has against them. And he's communicating to Habakkuk. He says, yes, I understand that they are wicked. I understand that they are deserving of punishment and they will get it in my time, God says. Then we see Habakkuk wraps up in chapter 3, wraps up this letter with a prayer. And a majority of chapter 3 is a recollection of Habakkuk to remember God's covenant faithfulness to Israel. And he starts off in verse 2. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath. Remember mercy. At this point, Habakkuk is looking at this and he is recognizing the inevitable judgment that is coming. And he says, God, in your wrath that you are going to judge the, the nation of Judah with, please remember mercy. Then please revive what had been here previously. Bring this nation back. I realize, I understand that you've communicated that we are about to go through a major situation here of, of, of condemnation. But God, revive us. Restore us. In your wrath, remember your mercy. And then he goes on to recount through verse 15, the faithfulness of God through the Exodus, through the conquest, through the wilderness, the faithfulness of God that he had showed to Israel time and time again, that the nation of Israel will be able to look back and say, yeah, God is powerful. God is on our side. God will fight for us. That God will, God specifically put them in a situation where the most powerful army on the face of the earth was bearing down on them and to their back was a body of water. God put them in an impossible situation so that he could say, watch this. And divide the water so they could walk through. I know I've said this before, but if you were to call the heads of every every engineering uh, planning program in the nation of Israel at the time. Moses is like, all right, folks, we need a good idea to get ourselves out of this jam. At no point would any of them suggest, let's walk through on dry land and divide this water. None of them would have come up with that solution. But God put them in that impossible situation to show them that he will take care of them if they obey him. And that is what God is continuing to do. That he is going to allow them to go through this horrible judgment, through this conquest, to show them that they must depend upon him. In verse 16, as we approach the end here, Habakkuk is terrified at what is coming. Imagine, put yourself in his sandals here. 
He's cried out to God and said, God, I don't understand what's going on. And God says, it's a lot worse than you think. Let me show you what's going to happen. Sneak preview. Verse 16, he says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. I understand what is going to happen. And this is terrifying, Habakkuk saying. I'm scared. My legs are shaking. I feel like jello. If jello had existed, he would have written that. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. That's remarkable. Bacchus says, I'm terrified, but I'm going to wait in faith for, for you to, uh, to accomplish what you have said is going to take place. It's like he's sitting just waiting and watching the horizon for the army of the Chaldeans to come marching over the hills and to destroy everything that Habakkuk holds dear and to pillage and destroy everything. And now all he is left to do is to wait for that to happen. Now, he didn't have a bunker to go run and hide in. He didn't have a year's worth of provisions hidden in aluminum cans. But he sits there and he waits for the inevitable to happen. And then he closes this book with three verses that stand in a stark contrast to anything that you or I would feel in that situation. And he says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. So say, even though everything we depend on should fail. Now, we got like the smallest, tiniest glimpse of that when you go to the store and you're thinking, I'm not sure if they're going to have ground beef or toilet paper, right? Imagine it is so much worse than that, that you go to the store and you can't buy anything. There is no food. Everything that you have built your life to depend upon is gone. Nabakic saying, even though all of this, they're going to come through and they're going to torch all of our fig trees. They're going to take all of our cattle. They're going to destroy all of our fields. Verse 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. He uses the covenant faithfulness name of God there. I will rejoice in Yahweh. I will rejoice in the covenantal faithful God who made a promise to us. I will rejoice in him because despite the current circumstances, I know that he is faithful and in him will I find my joy. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. 
So we see Habakkuk's reality in verse 17. We see Habakkuk's rejoicing in verse 18. And we see Habakkuk's resolve in verse 19. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Compare that to what we see in verse 16, where his legs are shaking. His body, his lips are quivering at what is about to come down. And then he reflects upon what he knows about God to be true, his covenantal faithfulness, the salvation that's found in the Lord. And he says, my strength is not found in me. My strength is found in the Lord. That is why I can stand like a deer on the precipice, on the cliff above the fray and watch what God is going to do. I don't have the ability to stand and watch what is going to happen. The condemnation of the Lord come down with a fierce wrath. I don't have the strength to stand and watch that in and of myself. It is God who gives me the strength to stand. So like at the beginning when he says the wicked are surrounding the righteous and it is terrifying. He's saying, I stand because of the strength that God gives me regardless of whatever it is that faces me. And the terrifying thing for Habakkuk is he knew what was facing him. He knew what was coming. He didn't have to use his imagination. He didn't have to sit there and theorize as to what God was going to do. God told him exactly what he was going to do. And it was a lot worse than Habakkuk ever would have thought. Habakkuk started all of this with a confused plea of God. What in the world are you doing? Why are you not acting? What in the world is going on? And now he ends with a full assurance of faith, lifting above the madness and focusing his heart upon his savior. That is what a lament does. It recognizes the current events. It cries out in anguish. But in the end, it is reminded of truth, of what we know to be true about God. And it is in that truth that we place our confidence. Brothers and sisters, we live in times that are uncertain and darkening. There was a time where I never would have imagined that churches would have to make the decision whether they would have to listen to the directive of their government in America or ignore it regardless of whatever you believe is, is the right solution. I never would have imagined that pastors in America would have to be in that situation. I never would have imagined that we are facing the world that we live in now. But our salvation is not in political deliverance. Our salvation is not in a political party. Our salvation is not in convincing people to adopt our point of view. Our salvation is not in making sure that we are as physically prepared as possible to withstand whatever it is that may come against us. We have something that is greater than Habakkuk had. We have a risen savior. That is something that Habakkuk could only look forward to. He could not look back upon. We live not in the shadow of a Babylonian empire ready to come down and destroy life as we know it. Rather, we live in the light of the cross. 
That is where we draw our confidence from. That is what we face. That is how we're able to face the uncertain times that, that are standing and waiting for us outside these doors. Though our circumstances deteriorate and degrade, our faith is built on the foundation of God's strength. Our feet may tremble, but our security is in his capable hands. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, God, we, we do not have the privilege of knowing how it is that you are working, what your plans are, Lord, that God, you had a special relationship with Habakkuk where you communicated exactly what was going to happen to him. Lord, we, we are not privy to that. Lord, we do not know what it is that you were going to do. But we, we do know, Lord, is that you are faithful and you are the God of our salvation. Lord, in the face of opposition, in the face of uncertainty, in the face of a culture that is ramping up wickedness and demanding acceptance and celebration of it, Lord, Lord, we know that our strength is found in you and you make our feet like the deer's and you make us tread on the high places, Lord. God, I pray that in the face of uncertainty, Lord, when our our legs can shake, when we can be driven to fear, Lord, I pray that we would quietly wait on you that you would remind us of who you are, Lord, that what we know to be true of you, what you have communicated in your word, Lord, would educate our reaction, our disposition, Lord, our expectations, Lord, that we would take what we know to be true of you and live in a boldness, God, because you are the joy of our salvation and our security is found in you and you alone. I praise things your name. Amen.